Well, a couple of housekeeping matters. Um, I failed to put two important things on the prayer list. I want to announce them, and then when I pray for my sermon, I'm going to pray for them as well. The first is our missionary, Chuck Phillips. As you know, he serves in Europe, reaching a very sensitive people group. Uh, and he is having um, heart surgery tomorrow, an aortic valve replacement. Isn't that right, PJ? Um, so that's tomorrow. Uh, so we prayed from last week. We failed to put in the bulletin for this week. And then Joe Downing is having uh, back surgery a week from tomorrow. Uh, so we want to be in prayer for her. Um, so I'm going to pray for our, our sermon, and, uh, and I'll pray for those two things. Um, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you that while we forget things, you don't. Um, and we lift up to you these dear saints in the Lord. We think of Joe as she goes under the knife a week from tomorrow for her back. We ask, Lord, that you would give her uh, full and complete recovery, that the surgery would go well and bring her relief for her back. Lord, we also pray for um, your servant, Chuck Phillips, serving overseas and as he goes under the knife uh, tomorrow for this um, major heart surgery. We ask, Lord, for everything to go well, that this would bring a new um, season in his life of wellness, and we pray for a quick recovery with no complications. Uh, We pray for our brother. In the name of Jesus, amen. I forgot to pray for the sermon. Bow your heads. Uh, Dear God, I pray for the sermon. (laughs) We uh, ask that you would give uh, both the hearer and uh, preacher alike anointing of the Spirit, that you might change our hearts, we might be more like you, and that our hearts would be more enraptured and enthralled of our Savior. And it's the name of Jesus we ask it. Amen. Well, turn, if you will, to Luke chapter 18. As a reminder, we're in the middle of a break from our series on Exodus. We've got a week or two left, and then we'll dive back into Exodus until it's time for Advent and we get closer to Christmas. It's crazy to think that we're already talking about Advent. Uh, Maybe you're not, but I am. Uh, Let's look at Luke 18, verses 18 through 30, a text that you know well, and it's a good, good thing to look at this morning. And a ruler asked him, this being Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come... Follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, looking at him with sadness, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with men... Is, is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I have a friend who is a football coach and a history teacher. This is not Drew Luker, although he fits both of those bills, who tells of a time when he was teaching in another state in what could only be described as a failing school. 
And when it came time for an exam or a test, the day before the test, he would stand at the front of the class and say, today I'm going to read you the exam and the answers. Please take notes. It would go with something a little bit like this. Question one, in what year was the Declaration of Independence signed? Answer, B, 1776. Question two, and he would walk through the entire exam. And you know, the next day would be exam day. And all the same people would be there. And at least half of them would fail the test. And you get to wondering, weren't you listening? Where have you been? Oftentimes when we read the Gospels, we think that of the disciples. Really? Where have you been? Hadn't you been listening? And then we get to thinking, well, maybe I ought to say that about myself. Where have you been? Hadn't you been listening? Well, we have one of those situations in our text today. Jesus has been teaching in an area called Perea. And as Luke 18 has unfolded, we find that the, the group of people to whom he's speaking is a rather diverse group of people. You've got the religious elite, the Pharisees. You have sinners. You have tax collectors. Horror of horrors. You have real sinners with flagrant sin. You have little children and parents who want Jesus to bless their children and then apparently over in a corner somewhere, there's a man whom we call because of gathering the descriptions of this man from the three different accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke of this man. We call him the rich young ruler. And he's been sitting over the side. He's been listening to Jesus. And he pipes up. And the things that he asks make us wonder, where you been? Hadn't you been listening? He makes certain mistakes about salvation that are very much still alive today, especially in the Bible Belt. And today I want to walk through those mistakes he makes regarding salvation. Well, this man is the rich young ruler. What do we know about him? The first is he was rich. As a rich man in town, he would have automatically been seen as a godly person. The theology of the day, if you had money, that meant that you were um, under the favor of God. They seem to have forgotten the story of Job. But perhaps in our culture it's not much different. Uh, the command to not show partiality to the rich is something that pertains to the church as well. How often do we show partiality to those who can do something for us over those who can't? As a rich man, he would have experienced great luxury, pleasure, plenty of food, nice clothes, and good standing in the community. When people saw him walking by in the marketplace, they would greet him. They would show deference to him, and he would have significant sway and influence over others. Many would have liked to have been him. Something that we fall in today, right? We either um, have riches and want more, or not rich and want to be rich even though we forget the command of the Lord Jesus Christ in Luke 12, where he tells us that a man's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. 
Well, he's rich, but he's also young. You know, it is perhaps common, or not common, more common for folks to have more wealth towards the end of their lives. When they have worked for decades and squirreled away some retirement, and then they only have a few years to enjoy it by man's reckoning. But how privileged this man was, because he was both rich and young, and had the promise, at least from a fleshly perspective, of having many years to enjoy his comfortable position. What could be better? Well, perhaps because of his youth and his wealth, the local synagogue, the gathering of believers, had made him a leader. We read he's a ruler. He wouldn't have been a Roman ruler, so it's likely that he was a a ruler in the local gathering of the saints, the local synagogue. while, While he was amongst the local leadership of the church, well, the synagogue, Jewish gathering of believers, he was a blind guide. And as we would say in the South, he didn't know squat about what it meant to walk with Jesus. We know this because he opens his mouth. Do you have this problem? Sometimes I do. I find that my foot fits regularly right in my face. Proverbs 17, 28. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Well, he didn't close his lips. He opened his mouth wide and he says in verse 18, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's wrong with this question? What's wrong with this question? This is a stupid question. This is one of those bad questions. Because it shows that he does not understand how salvation works. Where has he been? Hasn't he heard the parable, the tax collector and the sinner? Or the Pharisee and the tax collector, rather? Didn't he hear Jesus say the one who was all puffed up left condemned to hell and the one who, uh, who was a tax collector and a real sinner and said, Lord, forgive me, have mercy on me? He's the one who left saved. Hadn't he just heard Jesus talk about the little kids when the, fair, when the disciples tried to keep him from coming to him and say, you have to receive the kingdom, receive the kingdom like a little child? Hadn't he been listening? And so he mixes metaphors here. And he says, what must I do to inherit? Now this last week we looked at the fifth and sixth commandments on Wednesday night about honoring your father and mother and not committing murder. And the only thing that I can figure out to do to inherit eternal life is killing your father and mother. Because that's how you inherit. Someone must die and you receive it. It is a gift. It's not earned. He is interested in playing games and outward actions to earn his salvation. We get this because he calls Jesus good teacher. Now, there's no doubt Jesus is a good teacher. He's much more than that. But there's no doubt he is the best of teachers. He is the lawgiver. But what he was doing was engaging in flattery. You know, when you want to tell somebody something or ask them something, what do you do? You butter them up. So, how you doing? So good to see you. Well, in this day and age, you would start like this in a greeting. You would say something good about the other person, and in the custom of the day, you would therefore obligate them to say something nice about you. And this man's about to start talking about his salvation. So he is expecting Jesus then to call him good. But the problem is, Jesus is going to say, No one's good except God alone. He's looking to play games. 
The rich young ruler's first mistake is that he can earn salvation. There is something he can do to make it to heaven. But this isn't limited to the first century Palestine, is it? It's up and running in our culture as well. What can I do to be saved? My friends, there's nothing you can do to be saved. Let's make it real clear. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not works, by faith. And this is not your own, listen to this word, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And even this gift that is mentioned here, the doing, this is referring to the faith with which we call on the name of the Lord. Even the faith which we have to call on Jesus for salvation, that itself is a gift. We can't do anything to receive a gift. Otherwise, it's not a gift. You know, living... Life assuming that we can earn our salvation is a terrible way to live. One, it doesn't get you salvation. But two, as believers, oftentimes we slip back into this, don't we? We think our standing and significance and our importance and our uh, reputation, that these things are found in what I can do. Perhaps something bad has happened to us and we wonder what we have done bad because certainly we are in charge of our own salvation. But my friends, that's a terrible way to live. It's a way to live in bondage. For it means that what I do is who I am. And that is not how God works. Because then it would must mean you have to have the best job or the best family, or the best standing or the best bank account. And there's no hope in any of those things. They will fail you in this life and the next. It is only what Jesus Christ has done for you. That we rest in Him and receive salvation. We cannot earn it. Well, a second mistake we find as Jesus responds to him in verses 19 to 20. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Jesus deflects this man's attempts to trap him into saying something good about uh, this, uh, this rich young ruler. He doesn't, he doesn't play games. But he kind of does. It's kind of interesting what he says here. Why do you call me good? You know no one's good except God alone. What's, what's the irony here? That he is God. Here is the lawgiver. He is, he is more right than he realizes. Jesus throws it back in his face. If this man wants to do something to earn his inheritance, then yes, there is, a, there is one way to do it. And it means completely and perfectly obeying the law of God which we cannot do. So there's not a way you can do it. See, Jesus references five of the Ten Commandments, most of the second table of the law, all except the Tenth Commandment about not coveting. And here is the second mistake we find in verse 21. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. Okay, let's just get what just happened here. Here is this man who has just told the lawgiver himself who appeared to Moses in the shining cloud of glory upon Mount Sinai and gave him the revelation of his character, the Ten Commandments. And this man has just told the lawgiver, I have perfectly kept your law since I was either a child or bar mitzvah when I became an adult according to Jewish law. The guy is blind. 
One commentator put it like this. He says, an answer more full of darkness, it is impossible to conceive. He who made it could have known nothing either about himself or God or God's law. He was interpreting the law in such a way that it made him sound good. You know, when it says don't murder, he was just interpreting, well, I haven't actually taken a knife and stabbed anybody in the heart. When the law says we do that all the time when we respond in anger, frustration, contempt, or gossip. When we gossip or slander somebody, y'all, that's murder. How often we've done that, even today. I have a new pair of jeans. I like them a lot. Uh, They're $70 jeans that I paid $4.50 for at Dirt Cheap. That's right. Love some Dirt Cheap. And I love these jeans. And you know why I like them? Uh, They've got like 1% of this um, stretchy stuff in them. No, it's not spandex. (laughs) You know, guys can't wear spandex, so it's not spandex. (laughs) But it probably is. But most of the jeans they're making now, I'm finding my significance in Christ, not the fact that I have flexi jeans. Uh, you know, it has a little, bit of a, uh, a little bit of a stretch in it. So you don't have to do the bend and stretch when you get them out of the, um, the dryer. You know what I'm talking about, the bend and stretch? Well, see, what has happened is, especially when I eat the double, triple, crunch wrap supreme combo box from uh, Taco Bell, I find that these stretchy jeans are just fantastic. Now, I could change my diet so that my pants would fit better. But instead, I've changed my pants so I can do whatever I want. Now, this is what we do with the law, isn't it? We put a little flex in the law. And we change the law so that we don't have to change our behavior. And that's what's happened here. This man has reinterpreted the law in a way that it justifies his behavior. But guess who gets to set the terms when it comes to the law? Well, the lawgiver. We do this not only in first century Palestine, but now. What's the problem with this? Have you ever made tea before? I mean, a lot of tea. Like the amount of tea that Miss Bernice makes on Sunday nights. If you take a five-gallon big tub of tea and pour in the sugar, you know, 12, 15 pounds of it, whatever you put in, and, and then you take one drop of cyanide, one drop, and you put it in that five-gallon bucket of tea, what's it going to do to that tea? It's going to turn all of it into poison. James 2.10 says that if whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Romans 3.20 says, For the works of the law no human being will be justified or saved in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This man had deceived himself that he had perfectly obeyed the law. He hadn't, y'all. Neither have you. Neither have I. And one sin ruins the whole lot. Well, it just gets better. There's another mistake here. We see in verses 22 to 23, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. 
we heard in the special today about the heart. Jesus knows how our hearts work. He had diagnosed the problem Jesus had. This man, this rich young ruler, had a divided heart. He wanted salvation, but he didn't want God. He wanted Yahweh's blessing, but he didn't want Messiah. His heart was not filled with the Lord, but was filled with the riches of the world. He was rich to the world, but poor to God. He had the outward trappings of religion, but not a transformed soul. He bore the physical markings of circumcision, but not a circumcised heart. This man was playing games. What was his third mistake? He thought he could love God and love money. He didn't think that God would demand all of him, all of who he was. Rightly, Jesus says, what is the first and greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not love the Lord your God with part of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. How often do we have to repent of that? If he had fully obeyed the fifth through ninth commandments, which Jesus describes here, which he hadn't, but even if he had, he's transgressed the most important of them all, the, the first and great commandment. Have no other gods before me. For what was his God? Jesus diagnosed it. It was his finances. It was the very thing that keeps the American economy running, the love of money. Money itself is an amoral issue. depends on how we use it and what we do with it and what our heart thinks about it. But this man's God was not the Lord Jesus Christ. This man's God was his love of money. The Lord Jesus required this man to sell all that he had and to distribute it to the poor because it was the one thing that was keeping him from surrendering fully to the Lord Jesus Christ. He wanted to buy salvation instead of receiving it. Because receiving it would mean that somebody else was in charge of his life and his salvation, namely God. The Bible is real clear about the dangers of the love of money. 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10. For those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Note that it does not say those who are rich. For that might be whatever, whatever your threshold of rich is. That might be a very small part of the population. Although worldwide, we're all just filthy rich. But those who desire to be rich, which includes a lot larger percent of the population, namely us, they fall into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It doesn't say the love of, it doesn't say money. It says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Proverbs 30, verses 8 through 9. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. The most convicting is Matthew 5, 24. No one can serve two masters. Not the rich young ruler, nor you, nor I. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 
Why is that? Y'all, you know, we're in a, the, the stock market is booming right now. Um, if you read the, the stuff about the stock market, it shouldn't be doing this. If you look at the P-E ratios, I don't even know what that means, but they're all out of whack. If you look at the trajectory of, of, of what's responsible growth and where we are now, it's all out of whack. It's great for your retirement account. But at some point, a correction is going to happen. Historically, it always does. And what's it going to say about our hearts, my heart, when I go and check my retirement account? And it's gone down a lot. When I look at the bank and the funds aren't there, save, save wisely, invest wisely. Those are all good godly things. But money gives us the image or the, the deception that we don't need God. It can do those things. It can be used for great godly purposes. But we must be careful. Do we love money more than God? We cannot serve God and money. But we also can't serve God and hobbies. God and golf. God and hunting. God and fishing. God and baseball. God and children. God and grandchildren. God and parents. God in your house, what it looks like, God in perfection, all those, whatever it is for you. How often our hearts are divided and we can't live like that. We have to be careful what we make idols out of because God is in the habit of taking those things away from us for our own good. This man thought he could love God with just a little bit of his heart. He thought he could have this part of his life over here and you know God's over there and I can interact with him on Sundays. But God demands... All of us. Is there something in your life, person, thing, habit, addiction, that you haven't surrendered to the Lord? That's what God's calling you to surrender to Him this morning. The narrative continues with Jesus' statements in 24 to 27. Jesus, seeing that He had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. I love the image Jesus uses here. He takes the largest animal in Palestine, the camel, and then uses the smallest hole in Palestine, the eye of a needle of bone or metal. And he says, it is impossible for this camel to go through that itty bitty little hole. And they said, well, then who in the world can be saved? I thought all rich people had it all, all together. Surely they go to heaven. He says, no, no, you don't understand. It's impossible. But the thing is, it's not just impossible for those who love money to go to heaven. It's impossible for any of us to go to heaven outside of the work of God. Because our idol might not be money. It might be something else. Our God might not be this, but it's something else. And apart from Christ working in our heart, it will not be Him. But Jesus has come and He has died for us and then He saves us from ourselves and from our sin. Our salvation from beginning to end, start to finish... It's all Jesus. Even the faith which we call upon Him, that is a gift from the Lord Jesus Christ. What is impossible with man is very possible with God, that the rich and poor, hurting and, and joyful, that everyone can be saved, all who come to the Lord Jesus Christ and call upon His name, including you. No matter what your past is, no matter what you're struggling with, whatever your problems are, those things are not too big for God. Well, Peter and the others are standing around saying, look, Jesus, we've done this. We've given up everything. 
So Peter pipes up. You know, you get a little nervous when Peter starts speaking. He says, truly I say to you, Jesus said, there's no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Y'all, when we lose our lives, we gain our lives. When we forfeit them, that's when we get life in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we surrender our lives to Him, that's when He gives us all that we could ever imagine or conceive of and even more. All that we have given up in this life pales in comparison to the spiritual riches and inheritance and blessings that are already ours in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For this light, momentary affliction, it doesn't seem light, does it, at times? But this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Y'all, we get a lot of things wrong in this world, and that's okay. But let's not get salvation wrong, because that's not okay. Instead, let's surrender all that we have. God demands it all, that we might be saved. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Lord, help us again to surrender all to you. Lord, we do, and then we take it back. And we resolve, and we fail. And we thank you that our salvation is not bound up in our performance, but upon the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Lord, may all here know and be saved. In the name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen.